Welcome to Murder Bucket, the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. I'm your host, Hannah. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Good evening, everybody, and happy Tuesday. I hope the start of your week has been really great. I know it's only been two days in, but we're getting there. We're close. We're almost to the halfway mark. That's tomorrow, hump day. I want to start a new thing on the podcast. I want to kind of tell you guys how my week has been going, how my weekend was, and how my previous week was. I know that while you're driving or you're in class or you're sitting at work, that maybe the podcast isn't as personable as you would like, and I want to kind of help that. I want you to get to know me, and I want to get to know you guys. Throughout the week on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, let me know how your week is going. Let me know the ups and the downs, everything in between. So if you like this segment of the podcast, great. If you don't, just let me know. No big deal. No hard feelings. Whatever. It's all good. So my Monday and Tuesday have been really great. Getting some stuff done at work. Woo woo. Awesome. My weekend was really great. On Friday night and Saturday morning, well, really all day Saturday, I had a women's conference at my church. It was called the IF Gathering, and it was virtual because obviously COVID, but we were able to really gather in our community hall with a lot of the ladies from our church. We still social distanced, we still wore our mask, no big deal, but It was really great to be able to see a lot of the ladies from the church that I haven't seen over the past year. It was great to kind of like talk and do praise and worship with each other and hear everybody singing and then attend a conference with everybody and kind of talk about it. It was great. Last week, eh, kind of okay. Having issues with my energy company. Don't know what's going on there. For some stupid reason, my usage has gone way out the window. My bills are crazy high. So I'm dealing with that. Hopefully that'll be fixed soon, but that's super boring stuff. Sure, you don't want to talk about it. And then I think if I remember correctly, or I've maybe seen on Twitter or social media that something new is coming out today. Oh, wait. That something new is here on Murder Bucket, and your wait is over. The new podcast series launches today. So, buckle up, grab your favorite snacks, mine are Flamin' Hot Cheetos, and join me over the next 28 episodes. Yes, I said 28. We are going to go on a cold 
case road trip. Each episode will explore two cold cases from different places. They are going to be from all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and five inhabited territories. They are in no particular order. I was just being super random about them, but listen to see if some might be connected. Without further ado, welcome to the first and second stops in our cold case road trip. In 1950, Garnett Jen was a well-liked 33-year-old home economics teacher at Portland High School in Portland, Indiana. She was in the process of working on her master's degree. When she didn't show up for work the next morning after attending a sorority meeting at the local country club, the school's superintendent, Dr. D.S. Weller, went to her home to check on her. When he walked into the garage that she rented, it appeared as if she had taken her own life. She had hung herself with a sewing machine belt from a car's door handle. Her body was removed and taken to a nearby funeral home before the coroner could arrive. During the initial investigation, police talked with witnesses that claimed to have seen her drive into her garage and park her car. Another witness claims to have heard screams coming from the garage, but just assumed an animal had startled her and thought nothing else of it. Now, it was noted by the first officer on the scene that she was kneeling by her passenger door and that her wallet and driver's license were nowhere to be found. State police started their investigation and found 11 spots of blood and rips in the sleeves of her coat. They believe that she struggled with her killer, which caused her sleeves to rip. Garnett's parents insisted for several weeks after her funeral to have her body exhumed and a proper autopsy be performed. The medical examiner concluded that she had indeed been strangled and that she was struck at least seven times on the head with a blunt object. A newspaper report from the time also said examiners found that she was strangled by hands and had a broken hyoid bone. She had bruises and had cuts on her left knee. Now, the cause of death was listed as a strangulation, but was not ruled as a homicide or a suicide. It is mentioned that on the death certificate, you can faintly see the word homicide as it appears above unknown as the manner of death. After local and state police launched the belated death investigation, the crime scene was not secured and gawkers had trampled through it and destroyed any other evidence that might have been there. It also appeared as if the car and other evidence was not safely secured or handled properly, so there was nothing to go on. Police training, procedures, evidence handling, and forensic sciences were nothing close to what they are today. Several years after the incident, police and reporters received several calls from an unknown male caller who threatened them to back off the investigation. These phone calls continued up until the early 2000s when they abruptly stopped. Now, a witness did come forward years later stating that Garnett went to the police department to file a complaint against her optometrist. She stated that he was stalking her. So Detective Wiki was able to confirm this story with police. According to Wiki, the optometrist left town shortly after the murder and was never questioned by police. He has since died and the police have decided to not release his name. 
In an article I read on WTHR.com, police chief Nathan Springer and Todd Wickey took a trip with reporter Rick Van Wyke to the crime scene after almost 69 years. Wiki believes that the killer was waiting up in the rafters of Garnett's garage for her to come home. He goes on to say she was ambushed and she was strangled and killed. The suicide was staged by the killer. Wiki quotes in the article that she was an unassuming, quiet woman who did her job and she died. She became a focus of such a scandal and sensationalism. Former newspaper reporter Chris Kennedy spent decades researching her death. He was one of the reporters that received the threatening phone calls demanding the immediate halt of this investigation. Kennedy only wanted the woman's dignity and reputation restored. I found an article on Wayne.com that stated Detective Wiki presented his findings on the murder to a packed room inside the Jay County Historical Museum on October 15th of 2019. The community was given two theories of what police believe happened in 1950. Detective Wiki said it could have been the optometrist or his wife. Maybe he wanted her quiet. Maybe the wife wanted her out of the picture because she had something going on with her husband. If I could have gotten DNA from the suspect's children and compared them to the evidence, I think the lab could have given me something, but that's never going to happen. He said that his findings would stay at the Portland Police Department so the office will always have record if evidence were ever to be found in the future. The Jay County historian Jane Spencer was only five years old when Garnett was murdered. She lived just down the road from where she was found. She states that once the news broke of her murder, the town's atmosphere shifted. She says, I can remember my mother. Everyone in town was so scared by this. She would not let me walk up Arch Street because it went past the garage. Mike Melder, a retired Indiana State Police Trooper and Crime Lab Director for the City of Indianapolis, said, In 1950, it may not have been as difficult to prosecute without physical evidence because there was a lot more emphasis based on a witness, what somebody saw, and what somebody said. But in today's society, people expect DNA. They expect fingerprints. In 2018, Melder gave a presentation on forensic science at the local historical society. The meeting quickly turned to the Garnett case. It caused an outreach of support from the community, which led to a new investigation by the Portland Police Department. Melder said one of the most difficult things for police to do anymore is to get the community involved. A lot of times they don't want to talk to police, either in fear of getting involved in the criminal justice system or fear of the suspect, which could be someone they know. It's community policing at its highest level because of a lot of investment of resources and time on this aren't given other places. Detective Wiki said, When I got this case, it was so cold and it was frigid. I'm just disappointed I couldn't go any further with it. Without forensic evidence, the case will never be solved. It will remain open but will sit inactive. If you happen to know anything about the Garnett Gin case, you can contact the Portland Police Department at 
7161. Columbus Day weekend in 1986, the bodies of Kathleen Thomas, 27, and Rebecca Dowski, 21, were found inside Kathleen's 1980 Honda Civic at the Chetlam Annex Overlook along Colonial Parkway in Virginia. When an autopsy was done, rope burns were found on their necks and wrists, which showed a sign of strangulation. Their throats had been slashed and diesel fuel was poured over their bodies and the car. The car was never ignited. Their purses and money were still in the car. It was determined that Kathleen struggled with her attacker because of a clump of hair that was found between her fingers. Both ladies were fully clothed and there was no evidence of sexual assault. Kathleen was a part of the second class from the United States Naval Academy to admit women in 1981. She left the Navy just before she died. According to different sources, she was being investigated by agents because gay and lesbians were banned from the Navy at the time. Rebecca was a senior at the College of William and Mary. She worked two jobs. Kathleen and Rebecca were secretly dating at the time of their death. Their families thought that their deaths were hate crimes. However, the string of murders that followed made them wonder whether a serial killer was involved. David Knobling, 20, and Robin Edwards, 14, were found shot to death in September of 1987 in Ragged Island Wildlife Refuge. According to David's family, his truck was his prized possession, so they knew something was wrong when the truck was found abandoned. His truck was found at the refuge parking area with the wipers and radio still on. There were also articles of clothing inside. David's father and a search party discovered the bodies along the water's edge of James River. There were multiple reports believed that Robin had snuck out to meet David just before they were killed. Her sister describes her as full of energy and not afraid of anyone. Robin had struggled with her mental illness, and she often ran away and had some pretty reckless behavior. She started going to therapy and was making progress just months before her death. On April 10th of 1988, Cassandra Haley, 18, and Richard Call, 20, were reported missing after they had attended a party in the University Square area. Richard's Toyota Celica was found at the York River Overlook on Colonial Parkway the next day with clothes inside. Dogs traced their scents to the river but soon lost it. Their bodies have never been recovered, and both have been presumed dead. Cassandra was a college freshman who modeled and taught gymnastics. She was extremely outgoing, and there was nobody she wasn't going to be friends with. Her family described her as very generous with everything. Richard was described by his family and friends as shy, but opened up once you got to know him. He loved going to the beach and was fond of his car, like most guys. In September of 1989, just after the Labor Day weekend, Anna Marie Phelps, 18, and Daniel Lauer, 21, disappeared while on the way to Virginia Beach. Anna Marie was dating Daniel's brother at the time that they went missing. His car, a Chevy Nova, was found at the I-64 New Kent rest stop. The rest stop was on the opposite route of their road back to Virginia Beach. October of 1989, the bodies of Anna Marie and David were found by hunters in a wooded area along Interstate 64, and they were wrapped in a blanket. 
It appeared that Anna Marie had been stabbed, but Daniel's body was too decomposed to determine his manner of death. Police believe that all eight murders were done by the same killer because of their similarities. Detective Steve Spengola was asked to investigate the murders in hopes of discovering new evidence. He believes that Kathleen and Rebecca's murders are not related and might actually be connected with another double homicide that occurred in the Shenandoah National Park in 1996. There have been well over 150 suspects questioned in connection to these eight murders, but every single person was cleared. The only evidence the investigation had was circumstantial DNA evidence, a few forensic strands, and some similarities. A docu-series on oxygen called Lover's Lane Murders interviews criminologists and the victims' families in hopes of shedding light on new evidence. Now, there are several theories that they go through in this series. Those are, a serial killer stalked the parkway. Series co-host Maureen O'Connell, who is a former FBI special agent, believes that because the killings all occurred at night and in areas that look like Lover's Lane, that it's the work of a serial killer. She mentions that even though they were not all killed in the same way, it's still a solid theory. A different theory is that the serial killer posed as law enforcement. There are some who believe that this killer might have posed as a police officer, a park ranger, or someone with authority. Because the windows were found rolled down in some of the cars, it does suggest that the drivers might have been speaking with someone in law enforcement. The wallets of the first and third homicides were on the floor in the dashboard, which made investigators think that they could be preparing to show their license. Former FBI profiler Jim Clemente stated, That tells me either they were getting ready because they thought they were pulled over by a police officer or park ranger, or whoever approached them pretended to be a cop. Unfortunately, there is no evidence to support this theory. They also have a theory that the murders might be linked by location and not one killer. The hosts of the docuseries reviewed the commonalities and dissimilarities with the location, the treatment of the bodies, the method of the murder, and time and date, the victims, motive, and crime scene. Lonnie Combs doesn't think it's the work of a serial killer. She said, My gut tells me that these cases are not connected. There's just too many differences. They also think a theory is savage hate crimes set off the series of killings. In the 1980s, the Colonial Parkway was also known as a gay lover's lane. Former homicide detective Steve Spengali said, It was known not only by the homosexual community, but by the haters of the community. That kind of opens up the window for somebody else to come along and pick them up. Kathleen and Rebecca were known to frequent this area on Thursday evenings, and it is possible that the killer was just lying in wait for them. Because Kathleen's throat was slit so savagely and Rebecca's wounds weren't as deep, it suggests that the killer may have been someone that she knew. It was as if Rebecca was just collateral damage. This theory fuels another about the possibility of a copycat killer who used the 1986 Colonial Parkway slang 
as a way to misdirect investigations into a double homicide that happened in 1988. There is speculation that someone who considered themselves a moral enforcer was the killer because of their view on homosexuality, public sex, a 20-year-old man with a 14-year-old girl as a punishable act and wanted to become a predator and kind of, you know, fix it. Carl Knobling, the father of David, believes that David and Robin's murder doesn't sinister overtones and that they might have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. In the docuseries, he said, My theory is that David saw something he wasn't supposed to. And his theory points to why so many innocent people become victims. Bill Thomas, the brother of Kathleen, strongly believes that in his lifetime, he will be able to identify his sister's murderer. Bill is one of the docuseries producers. He shares, I hope people will understand that the loss that we've suffered has not prevented us as families from continuing to focus on seeing some degree of justice done. Yes, this is a tragedy, but hope never dies. The families are determined to see this through. We've got amazing investigators working on our cases, and a lot of fantastic work has gone into the Colonial Parkway murders. We feel like we could be close to solving these cases. The investigations into all eight murders are ongoing and active. The FBI is investigating the slaying of Thomas, Dowski, Call, and Haley as they were found dead or went missing on federal property. State police and local agencies are investigating the murders of Nobling, Edwards, Lauer, and Phelps. You can watch the four-episode docuseries Lover's Lane Murders on Oxygen.com. If you have any information of who might have killed these eight innocent people, you can either contact the FBI directly or the Virginia State Troopers. And that concludes our first and second stop on the cold case road trip. I hope you will join me on the next 27 episodes as we explore so many cold cases. And I do hope that one day, maybe one of these cold cases will be solved. Check out this promo from my friends, Chris, Tyler, Zach, and Jerry at the History Boys podcast. All about comedy and history. It's time for an ad! Hi folks, I'm Tyler Armentrout. I'm Christopher Wheaton. I'm Zach Meck. And I'm Jerry Nash. And we're, we're the History, History Boys. Boys. And we're kicking your door down with a Bluetooth speaker and an 18-pack of beer. Ready to start party. It's my favorite history podcast on all the internet, not just because I'm on it, but because I listen to every episode full blast in my house drives my wife up the wall. This is the History Podcast for all you cool kids that sat in the back of the classroom. That's right. We are a comedy history podcast or a history comedy podcast. Podcast, any which way you look at it. We are the History Boys. That is spelled B-O-I-Z for those counting. And we are found anywhere you find your podcasts. Love you, bye. Thank you for listening to Murder Bucket. And I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at The Murder Bucket, on Facebook at Bucket Murd, and on Instagram at Murd Bucket.